Greetings, fellow citizen in the kingdom of Nye, and welcome to Renegade Files, your podcast home for deep investigations into the world of high strangeness. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, hacking the airwaves and sending you this pirate radio signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 34, The Unified Paranormal Theory. Ha <laughs> ha and oh boy, this is the real deal. So get ready for weirdness, twisted ideas, and concepts that are so crazy, they just might be true. Is there a reason that increases in Bigfoot sightings correspond to heightened UFO reports? Do people who see ghosts see more aliens? Are modern-day cryptids, ETs, and lights in the sky the same phenomena as ancient fairies, demons, and angels? And if so, is there one unifying concept that could explain why such experiences persist for centuries, despite a conspicuous absence of proof? On this episode of Renegade Files, we'll delve into the theory that there may very well be a common connection that unifies all paranormal events. On this journey, we'll take a few guidebooks like John Keel's The Eighth Tower and The Goblin Universe by Ted Holliday. And together, you and I will venture even further than these heroic figures as we make sense of the nonsensical and unite the untamed. Together, we will throw down on the lowdown and try to sort the cursed from the mythical with the grand convergence that is... The Unified Paranormal Theory. The Unified Paranormal Theory. The Unified Paranormal Theory. Paranormal Theory. Paranormal Theory. Paranormal Theory. Part 1. Can't we all just get along? A funny thing happens when you start to have conversations on paranormal subjects out in the open you quickly realize that some of the most ardent supporters of one subject, say, the extraterrestrial hypothesis of UFOs, are at best indifferent and at worst incredulous about other paranormal phenomena, such as, I don't know, Bigfoot. And I say some because the high strangeness community does include many, if not mostly, open-minded people. And a lot of people who are fully into something like Bigfoot lore might be like, yeah, UFOs, I'm not sure. Seems like there's something there. I never really looked into it too far. And a dedicated ufologist might say the same thing about Bigfoot. But there is a natural reflex at work here, I think. People who seriously study one or another sect of the unexplained are often very careful about their already tenuous reputation just by the very nature of the subject matter. So they want to steer clear of the repeater label. And I think that the fully committed on all fronts person is rare. I mean, have you ever met someone who was UFOs? Totally alien piloted crafts. Bigfoot? Absolutely real. Mermaids? From Atlantis. What do you think about ghosts? No question. See them every day. The Loch Ness Monster? Fully real. Mothman? 
I'm having lunch with him on Tuesday. Right? So that person who blanket believes everything loses credibility. At the same time, the person with an inordinate number of experiences in any single category, the UFO repeater or the Bigfoot repeater personality, is also quickly dismissed by believers and skeptics alike. For example, while doing research for our Bigfoot episode, I was reading a story about a man who had a pretty convincing Bigfoot encounter which had all the right beats. It was deep in the northwest woods. The guy was hiking alone on his way to a hunting camp that was a few hours into deeper forest from the logging road where he had parked his truck. So he was on foot, moving carefully, not making a bunch of noise. Then as he crested a small ridge, he saw a dark hair-covered figure on a slope beyond a ravine and he guessed the creature to be about half a mile away across the shallow valley between them. The man was still within the tree line, so he didn't think the thing saw him. He froze and watched whatever it was, a large ape-like biped hominid that by all accounts fits the Sasquatch description. He watched this creature break a few dead limbs from a tree and this hunter noted that the tree was between two conspicuous boulders from his perspective. He watched as the creature lumbered away with these large broken branches and after not seeing it again for several minutes he continued on. Once across the ravine the man found the two boulders with the tree between them and he saw the remains of the broken branches to be about 9 feet from the ground on the tree's main trunk and he then estimated that the Bigfoot he had seen must have been about 8 feet tall. I was all set to include this story in the episode when somewhere near the end of the article I read that this same man had reported seeing Bigfoot before. 34 times in two years. I haven't seen my brother 34 times in the last two years, and we live in the same town and we get along. So I scrapped that story because it just didn't ring true. The same thing goes for someone who's seen flying saucers land at least once on every annual vacation they've taken for 24 years in a row. And in the same way, someone who totally believes every single paranormal phenomenon without question is also somehow, right or wrong, seen as less credible. Serious paranormal researchers are afraid of this label, therefore they tend to be tribalistic. They study the UFO phenomenon and by and large leave Bigfoot to the Bigfoot guys. I think many people are interested in multiple aspects of the paranormal. I am. But for the majority of those doing research, they don't like their peas to touch their mashed potatoes, so to speak. People draw the line at Bigfoot being the one flying a UFO. Most people. But Bigfoot flying a UFO aside, is it possible that there is a common connection that unifies all of these paranormal events? Ironically, the main thing that many paranormal occurrences have in common is a scarcity of physical evidence. Many paranormal events come to us as descriptions of perception. Maybe it's the perceptions that are related in some way. 
often what we are dealing with are projections of a predisposed personality encountering something unusual, then relating the experience in ways that are framed by their expectations, cultural symbols, or the currently accepted possibilities. Someone goes into an old creaky abandoned house that's said to be haunted. They see a shadowy figure descend the stairs and tell us that they've seen a ghost. They were ready to see a ghost in that place. It doesn't mean they did not. But why don't people ever see ghosts at the gas station or at Target? They may, but you get the point. So much of this is set and setting. And set and setting extends into our cultural setting as well. For example, it seems that people have been seeing strange lights in the night skies for as long as we have been keeping records, and presumably before. So in pre-Christian pagan Europe, country folk seeing lights in the sky saw fairies and witches. Then Christianity bludgeons its way across the countryside until everyone is paying to go to church and then those same unexplained lights in the skies become angels and demons. Religion falls into the back seat behind science and we start to see aliens and interdimensional time travelers. This evolution can be seen as our societal projections of whatever we believe to be the most advanced applications of experience onto those things at the fringes of our current understanding. But then we have moments that blow this theory away, like the 15th century religious painting called The Madonna with the Child and St. John, where, in the background, we can clearly see a classic flying saucer in the sky and a man on the shore shading his eyes with his hand as he looks up at it. There are at least 10 paintings like this from antiquity and it obliterates the idea that what we think are UFOs today are what they thought were angels or fairies in the old days because these paintings show nuts and bolts flying saucers and not angels and fairies. I'll put a link to a list of 10 of these paintings in the show notes so you can see them for yourself. See way more pictures and get all the cool research I collected while making this episode with one tap on the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you so much if you are already a Renegade Files agent on Patreon. You make the show possible and you help it stay ad-free. And thank you also if you're one of the people who have bought merchandise from our merchandise shop. Also a link in the show notes. Rock that gear and thank you again. If you're not an RFA agent yet, you are invited by me right now. Come join the RFA. Get bonus content and cool perks. And help me make Renegade Files for us. Thank you for supporting the show. I'll see you inside at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. So throughout the ages, we have seen things we can't explain. And when we step back and look at all of this paranormal activity as a whole, one common denominator is the human element. It is possible that a single explanation could tie together these disparate experiences. 
Is there something beyond simple mistake or expectation that can account for the persistence of mystery across the sheer diversity of those who have reported such things as the Yeti, UFOs, ghosts, demon, the Fae, and black-eyed kids? Famed psychologist Carl Jung proposed the concept of the collective unconscious, which is the accumulated experiences of humankind, where each of us inherits a storehouse of subconscious, although retained, collective human experiences. These experiences manifest as archetypes, which are the images and symbols of the most important themes for humanity. God, mother, hero, villain, savior, teacher. It's possible that these many visions of unexplained phenomena are the manifestations of our collective unconscious, and when those encounters fail to adhere to a known archetype, we assign them an identity from that storehouse anyway. So Mothman becomes a hero warning us of a collapsing bridge. Unidentified creatures beyond a schoolyard become alien heroes warning us about air pollution. And UFOs seen by the military become alien threats to national security. Part 2. John Keel's Ultra-Terrestrials Luckily for us paranormal researchers, we do have a few guidebooks to help us as we move deeper into this question of a unified paranormal theory. The first is a book called The Eighth Tower by a man named John Keel. John Keel is perhaps best known for his 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, which was made into a 2002 film starring Richard Gere. The book introduced Keel to a wider audience than the few books on UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts that Keel had previously written. Then the movie paved the way for him to write 10 more books before his death in 2009 at 79 years of age. One of those books, in fact the next book he wrote after selling the movie rights to Mothman, and the book we are interested in for this episode, was The Eighth Tower. As for books that try to wrestle the unified paranormal subject into a summation, and there are a few. The Eighth Tower by John Keel is one of the most scientific. Keel spends a great deal of the book explaining things like the frequencies of measurable and observable vibrations, such as the spectrums of visible and non-visible light, ultrasonic, sonic, and supersonic sound waves. I'm not sure if supersonic is a sound wave, but anyway practical radio frequencies and the like, mixed in with these technical parts of the book are Keel's interpretations and descriptions on a range of subjects such as religion, ancient texts, folklore, and other recorded histories where the paranormal seems to cross paths with the mundane world. 
the Cliff Notes version of what he is driving towards in a large part of the 8th Tower is actually a fairly simple idea. The book as a whole is far from that, but what he's getting at is, we as humans have a limited perception when it comes to things we can see and hear and pick up on our radios and TV sets. We exist in a time and place where we have a visible spectrum of light we can see, but there are wavelengths of light beyond the perceptions of our naked eyes. At the same time, we can only hear a small slice of the sonic spectrum, but outside of that, there is a veritable cacophony of vibrations that fully exist, but we cannot hear them. In fact, as we age, we lose the ability to hear certain frequencies. Very young people can hear higher pitched sounds than older folks. And I've heard about kids using one of these frequencies as a ringtone so they can hear their phone or text message alerts but their parents or teachers cannot. Most people who can hear can hear 8000 hertz, and this is on the higher end of high pitched sounds. Most people over 40 can't hear the higher-pitched 15,000 Hz, and few people over 18 can hear the hissing pierce of 17,400 Hz. Not to brag, but I can hear all of those frequencies. I still got it, baby, but there is actually a wall-mounted device called the Mosquito Teen Repeller, which emits the annoying hiss of a 17,400 Hz sine wave that shopkeepers and convenience store owners install outside to keep teenagers from loitering around their doors while going unnoticed to their more grown-up actual customers coming in and out. Interesting for sure, but the point is that there are sounds we can't hear and colors we can't see, and this makes up the majority of vibrational energy around us. John Keel's assertion in his exhaustively researched and documented Eighth Tower book is that there are beings he calls ultra-terrestrials who exist across this wide spectrum and are capable of traversing the ranges of physical existence and vibrational reality that encompasses not only the realms where humans can perceive but a wider landscape we cannot. Keel calls this wider range of existence the super spectrum. It is in those times when these beings traverse from one side of the super spectrum then across our visible and audible landscape and beyond into those further invisible spectrum realms that we see and hear them, that we encounter them. In this way, ghosts may seem to materialize from thin air, then vanish through walls. UFOs appear suddenly, move non-physically, then vanish before our eyes. We see Bigfoot, we don't see Bigfoot, he leaves no trace. If all of these creatures were simply moving across our perceptible frequencies, they would absolutely appear to materialize and vanish, and we would find no evidence left, 
just like a bus passing us on the roadway leaves no trail. This is the realm of the ultra-terrestrial described by John Keel in the Eighth Tower. Keel also suggests that there are places in our world where these trespasses of perception are more active than others, and Keel calls these places window areas. Examples of window areas are places like Roswell, Skinwalker Ranch, maybe the Bermuda Triangle, haunted locations, Loch Ness, and all those places where people constantly see UFOs, ghosts, or cryptids. He never really offers any explanation or theory as to why one location might be a window area and another may not, but the idea is a cool one. Ultimately, in the Eighth Tower, and also in his book UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse, Keel suggests that what we are dealing with, at least when it comes to UFOs, is some perennial, non-human, or spiritual intelligence that has staged multiple UFO events over generations of time in order to create and reinforce some erroneous beliefs. This is interesting because it ties into something that Sam Tripoli mentions a lot lately, which is his belief that much of the chaos we see unfolding is propagated by some form of previously higher life forms that have been trapped here in our dimension, are jealous of our human and earthly place in the cosmos, and are on a constant mission to devalue our experience through confusion and suffering. That sounds exactly like the non-human intelligences staging events over generations to create and reinforce erroneous beliefs that John Keel talks about. Sam Tripoli has several podcasts. One of my favorites is Tinfoil Hat. I'll put a link in the show notes, so check him out. John Keel also says, and I'll paraphrase here, that flying saucer enthusiasts point with glee to the various polls showing half the population, including many scientists, now believe in the existence of UFOs as extraterrestrial crafts. But, he continues, the people of other ages also accepted the existence of dragons, vampires, werewolves, and fairies for the exact same reasons. That is, that other people believed in them too. In the end, John Keel has been cast as falling in with Hynek and Jacques Vallée in the belief that UFOs and aliens are an interdimensional thing and you wouldn't understand, that they were projections of our own psyches, but Keel never really committed to this any more than any other possibility, and neither did Hynek or Vallée for that matter. When you hear some concrete conclusion attributed vaguely to someone like Keel, just be careful because very often this smacks of mainstream media marginalization. The mainstream media loves to pull out something that somebody said one time and stick them with that label forever. It's easy for them. Part 3. The Goblin Universe if John Keel and his book, The Eighth Tower, represent the methodical, spectrum analysis, scientific version of the unified paranormal theory, 
then Ted Holliday and his book, The Goblin Universe, would be the wild, zealous, conspiracy theory cousin who stores his phone in the microwave on Thanksgiving. But as you go through both books, at least for my part, I think a camping trip with Ted Holliday would be way more fun. It would not be dull, that's for sure. Let's get into why that is. First, since we're talking about Holiday's book, The Goblin Universe, I have to give you some background. Holiday was never satisfied with the book and he was not finished with it when he died before it was published. He started working on it in the 70s and in fact they say he wrote a completely different version of it and I haven't been able to find out if that really exists somewhere, but it was Holiday's friend. Colin Wilson, who convinced Holiday's mother to let him publish the book after Holiday died in 1977 against the guy's wishes. Because Holiday never completed the book in the way he would have liked to, what we have is a disjointed and inconclusive treatment of a lifetime of paranormal studies, excursions, and adventures and mixed within this are chapters that seem out of place. All of this is within a subject that is already hard or impossible to pin down, but the book is still cool, so if you want to read it, have at it. Ted Holliday never actually gives us a single or succinct definition of what the Goblin Universe is but he does use it as a common phrase from the beginning of the book to the end. Let me just give you a few quotes so you can get a feel for this. The fact that protons can be observed as particles and as waves is the very essence of the goblin universe. If we try to probe a little deeper into the mystery of being, we find ourselves in the Goblin Universe, along with Alice having tea with mad hairs in top hats. It's all great fun, but what does it mean? The Goblin Universe is the place in the play where the actor switches one mask for another. The Goblin Universe is a hall of distorting mirrors into which we are born with yelling protest. The Hall of Mirrors is simply the external aspect of the Goblin Universe. The Goblin Universe is a hydrogen bomb. Admit the truth about one thing and you will end up facing the truth about a thousand more and your existing system blows up. The Goblin Universe will not be ignored. To comprehend the Goblin Universe, we need a modified science of physics. One or two of the real masters sees everything, and they know how the Goblin Universe really functions. So that's the end of the Goblin Universe quotes from the book. You got it all? <laughs> now, yes, all of those are picked out, and when you put them together like that, out of context, so to speak, it all sounds mad. But Holiday never finished the book as far as he was concerned, like I said, and so that buys him a large amount of leeway. Also, there is sense in a lot of it. 
Like this idea that the goblin universe is a bomb, and if you admit the truth about one thing, then a thousand other truths demand you face them, and this causes your existing frames of reference to, as he says, blow up. This is something we see in fringe culture all the time. This results in UFO apathy. Like when one guy in the Allagash 4 saw a UFO on one of their first nights camping, then he was shocked that the other campers weren't even interested enough to leave the campfire and come look at it. That is UFO apathy, and it occurs when people actively admit that they'd just rather not know, instead of having to think and explore their beliefs and maybe change some beliefs. This also happens with conspiracy theories in general. A huge segment of the world is content to just believe the official narrative because that's easy and they can also find tons of other people who will agree with them. So rather than erode their worldview and then have to think and work to rebuild a new one, they just believe what the news tells them. It's a perfectly docile way to live. It can be a dangerous way to live, as we see time and time again, but the irony is that the mainstream media always paints the free thinker as dangerous. So Holiday sets forth in the Goblin universe without ever really directly defining what the Goblin universe is, but as we go through it, an argument could be made that what he's talking about is very close to the super spectrum described by John Keel, which is that outlying area beyond our perceptions populated by Keel's ultra-terrestrials, which Holiday calls goblins. And Holiday calls him a bunch of other things too, but this is one way to interpret his book. Ted Holliday was serious about figuring out a way to converge all of the paranormal experiences across the board into a single cause or explanation, and he went to great lengths while working toward that end. He was the guy that went out there in the field and did the work. He spent the night in haunted houses and recorded his experiences. He conducted many interviews with witnesses to UFOs, aliens, ghosts, and cryptids. He did deep research into the records of the past, including medieval literature, religious texts, ancient cultures, and pagan prose. In the book, he goes through a part where he explores reincarnation by aligning the ways that two famous murderers, separated by ages, seem to have had similarities, and Holiday wonders if the two could have been the same reincarnated person. Actually, it could be said that he is positive that the two are the same reincarnated person. It's a stretch, even for a book like this, and it's barely paranormal at that. I guess reincarnation is. He has a chapter on what he calls trooping fairies, which he connects to modern-day sightings of multiple craft UFO formations, and the descriptions of both do sound the same, if you take them in broad terms. Then Holiday dives into theoretical dimensions of flexible time and space and negative electrons and the like. I think the overall idea here is that the Goblin universe exists outside of our currently understood definitions of linear time and three-dimensional space. 
and that the times when things get crossed up are those moments when people see ghosts or UFOs. Once again, this parallels Keel's super spectrum ideas just in a messier way. As I was reading through Holiday's time and space fluctuation concepts, I found myself recalling the ideas and adventures of Kevin and Randall in the movie Time Bandits. I watched that again last night when I finally took a break from working on this episode and it's still a great movie. It's really funny. Watch it if you haven't or if you haven't in a while. It's great. I give it 5 out of 5 pyramids. That is the just now invented Renegade Files movie review scale. The film came out in 1981, that's Time Bandits, but just in case, spoiler alert. In Time Bandits, the main characters are six former employees of the Supreme Being, and a young boy who falls in with them. The deal is that God had to rush creation to hit the seven day timeline so the universe is still full of imperfections or holes. God made a map of the holes to be able to repair them, but this gang who was just fired by God from their forest and tree designing job decided to steal the map and use the holes to jump from time to time, stealing historical artifacts for no other reason than to get stinking rich. It's interesting to see the parallels in Time Bandits between some of the ideas put forth by Holiday and Keel. These time holes in the movie are indicated on the map and they open and close at certain intervals. This aligns with Keel's idea of window areas, where beings who can transport across the super spectrum flow in and out of our perceptions. The holes in the movie even open and close vertically like black windows. The movie builds to a climax, more spoilers, as the gang discovers a hidden location on the map called the Time of Legends. This is where all of the myths, monsters, and folklore legends live and it is exactly Ted Holliday's Goblin Universe. The Time Bandits gang jumps through a time hole into the Time of Legends, and there they have to deal with ogres, giants, and even the devil himself, who, of course, also wants the map. It's seriously great fun and one of the best movies ever. Five Pyramids. But this idea of all of these mythological entities inhabiting a fringe universe parallel to our own is fascinating. The gist of both Keel and Holiday's books is that these beings slip across our observable existence now and then, and in some spots more than others, and this interdimensional component might explain the persistent lack of evidence or physical evidence when compared to the preponderance and ubiquity of the perennial paranormal experience. One last part of the Goblin Universe text that I want to cover, and no look into this book would be complete without it, is Ted Holliday and the Exorcism of Nessie the Loch Ness Monster. Aside from trying to come up with a unified paranormal theory, Ted Holliday was also an enthusiastic fisherman, and he wrote many articles and a few books about fishing throughout his writing career. 
As such, he would have been naturally interested in Loch Ness and his love of fishing, fish, lakes, and the paranormal all came together around the subject of Nessie the Loch Ness Monster. And here we have one of those events that makes Ted Holliday such a cool guy, especially compared to so many of the armchair paranormal investigators and typewriter theorists of his day. Ted Holliday loved to go in the field, to go on adventures, and to get down to the source of things he was working on. One of those adventures was to Loch Ness. He spent time with some young men there who were diving into the lake searching for Nessie. He camped out on the damp, cold shores, scanning the surface from dawn to dusk. And he met with locals to hear their stories and try to get a grip on this lake monster mystery firsthand. One of the people he met with was Reverend Donald Omond, who was also a doctor of philosophy who had studied the phenomenon of lake monsters in general and of Nessie extensively. This reverend had a unique theory about what Nessie was, and the fresh approach impressed Holiday, and the two became friends. Reverend Donald Omond believed that the Loch Ness monster that people had been seeing for ages was actually the ghost or spirit of an eldritch creature of malevolent intent, a demon from the ancient world. Oman cited numerous incidents of similar aquatic specters and the havoc their existence always caused the local townsfolk who lived on and near the infested lakes. Oman said that the populations around lakes that contained demon serpent spirits were always driven to alcoholism, addiction, divorce, depression, and black magic. He had performed demon water monster ghost exorcisms on other lakes in the past, and according to him, these maladies of the community had always been greatly improved thereafter. It should also be said that Oman's concept of Nessie and his ilk was far more complex than just the ghost of a dinosaur. To dive a bit deeper into his conclusions, here is a quote from MysteriousUniverse.org. For Omond, the monsters were projections of something large and terrifying from a bygone era. Monsters that may have existed millions of years ago, but which continue to manifest, albeit in paranormal form. He believed that one had to be at Loch Ness at the right time to encounter the monster, because these are supernatural entities that can only be encountered when the circumstances are conducive to an encounter. Once again, we have parallels to Keel's window areas. And this gets into the deep Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos of ancient, indifferent, immortal monsters. So hearing all of this, Ted Holliday was on board, and these two, after the proper arrangements had been made, climbed into a small rowboat with Reverend Omond in his robes, 
Holiday holding a bottle of holy water, and a film crew from the BBC in a skiff to starboard. I was able to dig up a clip from the original BBC broadcast from the summer of 1973, and while it might be a bit outside of the exact topic of this episode, I just had to share it with you. So let's listen to the Reverend Dr. Donald Omond as he and Ted Holliday set sail and from a rowboat on the windswept waters of Loch Ness exercise the demon spirit of the Loch Ness monster. May the evils of devil worship and nefarious magic cease. I adjure thee, thou ancient serpent, by the judge of quick and dead, by him who made thee in the world, that thou cloak thyself no more in manifestations. Be gone, thou hideous demon, unto thine appointed place, and return no more to plague the servants of Almighty God. Of all of the many cryptids across the world, it's interesting just how far Nessie has fallen out of favor. Every now and then a blurry photo will surface and make the rounds, but as far as groundbreaking Nessie sightings go, maybe the Holiday Omond exorcism actually worked. This is a fun subject because it brings together all the things we love and tries to figure out what's going on behind all of this. As fans of high strangeness, and that's an old term that I've grown recently fond of, we have watched the UFO question move from campfire tales to primetime news. Ghost hunter shows are now on the History Channel. And old guard conspiracy theories pale in comparison to the blatant audacity of current events. So there is value in stepping back and remembering that, yes, there are still mysteries in the world. Many. And it seems like, in some way, they are often connected. How is not perfectly clear, but absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Part of what I love about the paranormal is the mystery of it. The never-ending source material for a curious mind. The story of people like John Keel and Ted Holliday endeavoring to find a unified paranormal theory is a heroic story. These are ideas that so many have shied away from, but not people like them and not people like you and me. When things get weird, we get excited. It's funny, and I've said it before, but everyone has a paranormal story something that happened to them that they can't explain. A UFO, a ghost, a premonition, a dream that came true, a vivid memory of an ancient event, the feeling that you've met someone before when you haven't. These are glimpses into the goblin universe, moments when the ultra-terrestrials cross our visible spectrum. Have you ever been having a casual conversation with someone about some such experience, then someone else joins in and says something like, yeah, I don't believe in any of that, but there was this one time. Everyone has a paranormal story. 
Sometimes when we dive deep and then go deeper, we arrive at connection and harmony and we come out feeling energized and hopeful. And other times, the darkness has no bottom and we know we are out of our depth, to use a phrase that seems to be making a comeback lately. Let's approach the end of this with the first paragraph of H.P. Lovecraft's momentous story, The Call of Cthulhu, which I feel summarizes the impenetrable concepts and unresolved nature of a unified paranormal theory. So, H.P. Lovecraft from The Call of Cthulhu. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. These sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. End quote. So for Lovecraft, both going mad from the revelation and the peace and safety of a new dark age are two negative aspects of the world of existential dread which he is weaving in The Call of Cthulhu, which, remember, is a work of fiction and maybe for us, luckily so. But it is this piecing together of dissociative knowledge that psychonauts like Holiday and Keel are attempting. Now, we talked about the fact that even for paranormal researchers, like say someone who only studies the UFO phenomenon, when you begin to lump all of the paranormal branches together, you run the risk of losing credibility. On one hand, people like Keel and Holiday are brave because they cast those fears aside and dive deep to try to unify all of this weirdness. On the other hand, I'm realizing through this that I may be a purist. I'm not so convinced that every paranormal situation is in fact related in any way. One way that science seems to be attempting to reconcile these ideas is with the notion of parallel universes. First of all, the whole parallel universe thing is interesting, but remember that it is pure and total speculation and daydreaming and it lacks a single ounce of proof, much like so many things in the paranormal world. Why then is it that it's taken so seriously? The same people that will fawn and gush over how staggeringly intelligent the theoretical physicist is who opines and frankly makes stuff up about parallel universes despite a single shred of evidence will categorically marginalize someone who believes UFOs are extraterrestrials because there is a lack of proof. 
So it is possible that there are millions of parallel universes, each only differing by the position of a single atom nudged by a single quantum event, and all possible outcomes of all possible situations have created endless entire universes. That's basically the idea. But extraterrestrial life traversing space and time to visit Earth? Impossible. Now maybe both are true. As for the notion of parallel universes, my current opinion is that the universe we do have and are sure of is quite enough. It's vast beyond comprehension when we look outward with the telescope, the space telescope, and the radio telescope. And remember also that it is minuscule to a seemingly endless smallness when we look downward with the microscope, the electro-microscope, the particle accelerator. Infinity in both directions. Trying to find a billion other versions of this infinite universe in this parallel universe theory is like cheating on your supermodel, really cool, easygoing, fun to be with, supportive, faithful, nymphomaniac wife. It's not necessary. But quantum theory still suggests infinite universes where every conceivable physical reality exists. One universe where the cat is alive and another universe where the cat is not alive. And what transitions across these quantum event created universes is consciousness. The question is, does the consciousness of the cat always shift into the universe where the cat lived to be blissfully unaware of the universe where it died. James Jean, an astronomer in 1932, wrote, Mind no longer appears as an accidental intruder into the realm of matter, but we are beginning to suspect that we are the hailer, the creator, and the governor of the realm of matter. Not, of course, our individual minds, but the mind in which the atoms, out of which our individual minds have grown, exist as thoughts. So consciousness conjures the universe in order to perceive it and because it perceives it. The strong anthropic principle asserts that events must unfold to preserve the observer, so that each of us is immortal from our own frame of reference. There is an objective reality where we see people die and we know their consciousness is no longer among us and their body vanishes back into its component parts, but parallel universe theory suggests that their consciousness simply shifts into a universe where they persist. The materialist hopes that they do so unchanged physically, but Maybe it's just that their consciousness blends back into the source of consciousness, which is that ocean of cosmos awareness. The living intelligent universe. This is but one idea we can't fully understand, just like the many paranormal experiences we can't fully understand. The idea that all of the things we can't understand are part of one giant thing we can't understand is what drove men like John Keel and Ted Holliday to explore the paranormal world. 
It's what drives you and me to search into stories of the strange, the otherworldly, and the fantastical. There is, in fact, a single component that unites the Kingdom of Nye, that unites UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, aliens, fairies, angels, gods, witch queens, and goblins. That component is the human element. It is the person who encounters these things along the dark forest trails, at the end of the empty hotel hallways, and among the stars between the endless black ink of infinity. People have asked me if I'm running out of ideas for Renegade Files episodes yet. Hardly. Thank you sincerely for investigating the unified paranormal theory with me. Subscribe to or follow the show now on the app you listen with and rate the show if you think we deserve five stars. Share TheRenegadeFiles.com with your friends who might like to explore the deepest covert stories where logic clashes with the official narrative. I am so glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. You can help support this show at patreon.com slash renegadefiles for a small amount that makes a big difference to me. The fine folks who are Renegade Files agents on Patreon get bonus content and make the show both possible and ad-free. All for less than you tip a server for a single meal out. Thank you for supporting Renegade Files. Until our next adventure, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, space child. May the evils of devil worship and the fairest magic cease.